there is a renewed look at how do we uh, inoculate our IT against ransomware. Uh, and so it's it really is about a maturing of that process from, okay, how do I recover from it to how do I prevent it? How do I detect it? How do I train my users not to get impacted by it? Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Welcome back to Status Go. This is your host, Jeff Tun. We're starting 2022 with a series of predictions. We, we love to do this in the tech space. We love to do it here at InterVision. We've been doing this for several years now where we, we ask some of our thought leaders from within our teams to pontificate about what the new year will bring. And this year is no exception. We've talked to several of our folks here at InterVision and gotten their thoughts on what do we need to be paying attention to as we navigate through the unknown of 2022. Today's guest is my dear friend, Ben Miller. Ben and I have been working together now for several years. And whenever we get together, we have no trouble at all filling up airspace. So this will be an enjoyable conversation, I am sure. Ben is the senior cloud solutions architect for InterVision. So for those of you who are customers, you've probably worked with Ben on an initiative or two. But Ben, welcome back to Status Go. I think this is third or fourth time you've been on the program. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, I think so. And, and I enjoy it every time. I'm really looking forward to this because, as, as I said, these predictions can be can be pretty fun. I'm threatening with uh, Megan, who's our executive producer, that what we should do is go back and see some of the previous predictions and see how close we actually were with some of our thoughts. But we're not going to do that today. Today, we're going to look at some predictions that you made in uh, a couple of spaces that are related and one that might be seemingly a little unrelated, and we'll dig into that. So are you ready to jump in? Yeah, absolutely. Let's jump in. All right. So one of your predictions is related to ransomware. And so I'm just going to read that and would love your reaction to that. And then let's dig in a little bit to the who, the why, and what things do we need to be on the lookout for in 2022. So Ransomware will continue to drive businesses to consider more robust detection and prevention technologies, as well as implement testable DR plans. First of all, what's your reaction to that? You've been looking at this space for a while. What's leading you to this prediction? I think what I've seen a lot of that's led me to this prediction is the first step that people are taking to address ransomware is how to shore up their restorative capability, uh, mm -hmm. how to uh, address their backups, and how to address their DR and recovery capabilities so when and if they're hit by a ransomware attack, they can recover from it. Mm -hmm. That is a critical part of dealing with ransomware. But now that people have had a chance to realize that ransomware is part of our ecosystem, 
This is a, a reality that we're living with for a period of time. Uh, it's not going away anytime soon. Um, there is a renewed look at, okay, how do we uh, inoculate our IT against ransomware? Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's it really is about a maturing of that process from, okay, how do I recover from it to how do I prevent it? How do I detect it? How do I train my users not to get impacted by it? Yeah. Uh, those type of activities that are really, I think we're going to see both technologies and services around that growing in the next year. And so that's really what's different because I know you and I have been talking about this, uh, this two-prong approach to, to ransomware, where you've got prevention on one side for cybersecurity and you've got DR uh, on the other side with kind of that detection that sits in the middle. We've been talking about that for a while. So what you're saying is different is a lot of people have already begun to implement the DR side of this. And now the prevention and detection tools are getting more of a focus. Is that right? Yeah, I think those are more maturing and the approach to those is more maturing. People have had prevention and detection, you know, IPS, IDS, they've had, you know, SIM tools, you know, capability like that has existed. But I think what we're going to see is uh, the same way folks have looked at addressing their recovery in light, you know, with the, with the spotlight of ransomware on top of it, they're going to be looking at those tools with the spotlight of ransomware. And those tools are going to get maturity as well. Uh, you know, we came from a world where uh, we were looking at specifically bad actors and dealing with mm-hmm. DDoS and, and uh, you know, uh, buffer overflow attacks or SQL injection. And now we're dealing with a world uh, where ransomware can come in at the click of a, an employee's mouse. And, yep. uh, you know, how are we going to address that? It's no longer necessarily a, a border issue. It's a, you know, systemic issue yeah. uh, and yeah. and the tools need to understand that behavior need to understand that and and they are i think that, that i've seen growth this year uh in both the tools and the approach that's why i predicted next year that that's just going to ramp up yeah of our audience we run the gamut we've got a lot of it leaders that listen to the show we've got those that are in the tech sector itself listening to the show who needs to be most aware of this prediction? As you think about the personas, the people that you talk to, who needs to hear this message? I think there are two primary audiences. Um, One of those audiences is going to be the leadership of the business who is getting used to spending money for cost avoidance rather Mm -hmm. than that return on investment. And that's a, unfortunately, that's not uh, a sexy thing to do with your money is spend Mm -hmm. it to avoid spending more. Uh, I kind of relate that to buying tires for my car. That's never something I get super excited about, but it's something that needs to be done for safety and protection. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, so I think that's important. Um, That's one group, that leadership that needs to, to hear that message. Honestly, I think the other group are the end users. And I know we're not talking necessarily to the end users, but that awareness that your activity and your actions are having a significant impact on the organization. Um, And 
I, you know, I, I'm not shaking a finger at anybody. I'm not saying, mm-hmm. you know, don't go play Minesweeper over lunch. You know, that's a <laughs> that's a corporate decision type of thing and, and a personal type of thing. But I think just awareness of the type of uh, social engineering uh, attacks, mm-hmm. uh, things that are out there, that email or that text message that comes in that tells you about that package that you uh, never ordered. Just right. being aware and understanding about that threat and the impact that your choices can have on the business is uh, f- beyond just you. And, and I think that's the other half of that coin. I love that message because one of the things that that we've talked about on Status Go before is that cybersecurity is everyone's responsibility. And that's really the message that you're driving home with that second audience is you just can't leave it to the, the CISO or the cyber team or the IT team. You have to take responsibility for your own actions as well. That's that's 100% it is, uh, you know, that that is the company's responsibility, the leadership, the IT's responsibility to create that safe as possible uh, area around which that they can conduct business, protect the business, keep their data confidential, do mm-hmm. all of those responsibilities for the customer. And that responsibility for doing all of those then extends into everybody at the organization and knowing what that impact could be be because some of it's just awareness. I mean, hey, I just wanted mm-hmm. to play that game uh, or, you know, whatever. I'm eating my lunch at my desk because I'm working so much. Uh, heck, you know, that 15 minute break, I got to eat my sandwich. I might, you know, I, <laughs> I just wanted to take my mind off of work for a second and play this game. And, and the impact that a decision like that could have uh, on, on the organization, just being aware of that is, yeah. is a huge first step. Do, do you see that this has grown even more, taken on more of importance with the uh, remote work and work from home of the pandemic era we're living in? Oh, spot on. Exactly. I, I talked to, uh, I think, three different customers yesterday that one of their biggest concerns was getting their remote workers into a clean environment from which they could access their workloads, meaning uh, that they weren't able to sit down, use their personal computer and go directly in and access, even if it was over a VPN. Uh, you know, that, you know, securing the pipe is one thing, but securing that endpoint <laughs> yeah. is that next step as well and that goes to these tools right the the growth and the and the maturity of these tools to allow somebody to come into a unknown state personal device byod and you know use that to somehow connect in a safe fashion uh to you know corporate assets in a way that's not going to leak any kind of compromise from the source and end point to the the workload yeah i think this is just Really, it's taken the the threat surface or threat vector, if you will, um, and just exploded it. I I remember talking with uh, a friend of mine who's CIO for an organization, and he he said, well, pre-pandemic, I had 400 locations. I now have 14,000. And just the complexity of of trying to protect all of that is just mind-boggling. 
Absolutely. And the financials around it as well. Uh, you know, yeah. not only licensing, but hardware, you know, people are struggling with the decisions of do I send hardware out to locations? And now yeah. I've got a, the logistics of managing that, uh, you know, to, to deal with those situations. Yeah. So as you think about this prediction, um, more robust detection and prevention technologies, what are some of the trends that you're seeing in those technologies that maybe our listeners should do a little bit of research into? Oh, I think that's great. I think there's some exciting stuff happening with AI and ML uh, that's being built into these tools to uh, assess the detection. Um, mm-hmm. You know, tools that um, you know, and I, I know this has a little bit of a Big Brother bent to it, but you know, <laughs> understand and watch browsing habits that can understand uh, using AI and ML what are safe and what are unsafe uh, things to engage in. Uh, you know, same with inbound found content like email or downloads, what's safe, what's unsafe content. There's some really neat stuff happening. I read an article the other day that's just really bleeding edge where they were actually using the radio frequencies generated by running computers to detect whether it was infected with uh, malware or not. Uh, You know, this is bleeding edge stuff, but there's, uh, there's work being done to say, how can we uh, see that surface. You know, you're talking about the attack surface of, you know, 14,000 sites. You've got yeah. a lot of users doing work and, um, you know, going to websites, you know, Hey, I need to download that article or, you know, mm-hmm. somebody puts that PDF you need behind a, a sign in wall and, and you're putting in credentials and, and being able to identify what is useful and productive behavior, not yeah. from a, hey, look, we got to put a thumb on this, but more from a, we want to be w- w- riding over your shoulder, watching for that unsafe uh, location. You may have clicked on something that looked perfectly uh, safe to access, yeah. and yeah. that has been compromised. But the AI, the ML, those tools that are watching those threads are able to identify this doesn't look right, uh, are able to uh, trigger enforcement points, uh, logging points, uh, AI and ML that are watching the logs and, and, and things as well to identify uh, what doesn't look right. And then finally, you know, that's kind of that d- detection uh, and ride along with that prevention, yeah. being able to, you know, close the uh, submarine doors around that <laughs> bay that's been, uh, uh, that's been flooded and, and be yeah. able to isolate that before it has a chance to spread. One of the <laughs> biggest challenges with that ransomware is that y- users need permission to access all the, you know, th- their data, you know, that one approach is, you know, how do we, give them only the access they need. And that's the correct approach, right? You know, just enough permissions. But even with the just enough permissions, the impact that you can have, the data that you're allowed to access, that kind of thing, is still uh, a very big uh, surface and affects a lot of other people. So that detection, being able to slam close those firewalls, those metal doors and and protect everything uh, is, is critical to that. Yeah. The other part of your prediction that I think will make a good segue into another prediction that you made is testable DR plans. I always love including that word in that. But that takes us to your other prediction, which is replication and recovery technology, both native to 
and agnostic of the cloud will continue to mature and offer more cost-effective and flexible options to protect and retain data and workloads in the cloud. I love that because we've been talking about DR, cloud-based DR for a while, and it, the tools are are there. They're maturing and they're, they're getting more and more functionality. So talk to us about that prediction, Ben. Absolutely. It's, it's been exciting to watch the maturity. Um, when you and I first started doing this, the replication tools that were out there were really built for data center to data center copy where you're, uh, you know, maintaining multiple data centers, you know, a prod, a DR, or you're going back and forth between two prods to provide that. But, you know, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, using the cloud or, uh, you know, a, a cloud-based approach for disaster recovery does so many things, not the least of which is reduce the expense. Uh, having a second data center with equipment set up and just sitting there waiting for something to happen is a big dollar to spend, uh, even if you've convinced your leadership that they need to spend money to prevent loss. Yeah, yeah. So the approach to moving the data around, the data mobility is really going to be key to uh, to being able to really take advantage of the lower costs and the services. Mm-hmm. Now, what I mean by that is, um, there, you know, virtual workloads are are the trend. Uh, everybody's got virtual workloads these days. There still are workloads that aren't virtualized yet. Um, run across those, and there are varying reasons for those. There are non-Intel-based workloads that are oftentimes overlooked by many of these tools. So the ability to have flexibility in moving around your workloads is key to being able to leverage the cloud approach to DR. The ability to lift and move your workload uh, is foundational to that, Mm -hmm. but it's not the core uh, or not the only feature that you need to to pay attention to. Uh, Networking and end-user connectivity is critical. Um, not just end-user connectivity, but east-west connectivity. As you recover workloads, their mm-hmm. ability to talk to other workloads that may or may not have been failed over is, is critical to that. Uh, the ability to protect workloads that aren't virtualized or are non-intel uh, and understanding that their protection may be in different geographic or different services mm-hmm. uh, that yeah. are available. There is a lot of complexity to recovering. Now, if you are a 100% uh, virtualized shop and you can leverage one of these data movers, shoot it to the cloud, that's fantastic. That's a great simplified approach. And that is some of the progress that I've seen and been excited about over the last couple of years. Uh, the products for backup and the products for replication supporting the big major clouds, supporting recovery in the big major clouds. Now, there are still some backup software that have great on-site offerings that need to mature into the ability to recover their cloud. And we've seen signs that they are investing in that type of option. Um, one of our, our taglines here with our DR approach is, where do you recover if your data center is a crime scene? Yeah, uh, and and yeah. with ransomware, it's a crime scene, right? You know, th- so 
people don't keep uh, 200% of their capacity around just in case they need to recover into their data right. center. So some of these backup and, and restore tools that leverage, uh, you know, immediate and easy recovery are great for when you've been able to isolate a small incursion or, uh, you know, needed to, to restore something that's been corrupt in on-site capability. But when you really need disaster recovery, your site is not usable for production. You also need a tool that's capable of restoring into that cloud, into that different type of environment than your production environment is located at. And so that's what I mean about those tools growing and maturing to support that networking, that flexibility of where they're recovering, and that end user access. Well, same question on this prediction that I asked on the other ones, or the other one, who needs to pay attention to this? Who are you talking to when you talk about this prediction? Well, Actually, I'd love for all of the backup and replication vendors out there to hear that <laughs> message, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, to, to un, you know, to understand the, the value, that, that need for those features in their products. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd love for them to hear that. I, you know, I know that these vendors make their bread, you know, a backup vendor is making its bread and butter on backing up and restoring and making that easy to do and some features around that internally mm-hmm. uh, on the customer's site. Absolutely understand that. But understanding how valuable your product becomes to the end consumer when you can say, oh, yeah, but you could restore that in AWS or Azure or Google Cloud mm-hmm. or, or, or the moon, you know, anywhere you want, yep, uh, yep. we can restore those. And, and don't worry about it. We'll handle the uh, rest, you know, the conversions, the hardware abstraction layers, the IP networking, the all of the, the work that goes around that. I think the more mature yeah. uh, solutions are doing that. So I'd love for, for those folks to hear that. The other person that I think uh, I, I, you know, I would uh, target those words with are really the uh, consumers of that. As you are looking at consuming those tools, if you're looking at upgrading your backup, if you're looking at a refresh, if you're, you know, those types of things um, mm-hmm. that you're looking for those features so that you don't necessarily have to have multiple tools to accomplish your local backup and your your cloud-based restoration. Ask the vendor for those features. Uh, talk to them about what how those features truly operate, what the recovery time objectives look like if you were to back up to the cloud and then restore into the cloud. So understanding the tools that you have and how they support your efforts to be able to recover in those spaces. I think those are two great audiences for this uh, prediction because you're right. Sometimes our tools, and, and I know we partner with some great tools for a variety of different functions within IT, but sometimes they get pigeonholed in their thinking. And to broaden that, uh, as you're describing, I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, and then just the understanding of the complexities that are involved in multiple workloads. I know you and I were on a call a couple weeks ago and the organization, fairly large organization, and they've got a mainframe that is their core application that runs their core application. Uh, And then they've got a variety of applications that surround that. That is an incredibly complex environment to recover. And you need the, the flexibility of these new tools to be able to do that. Wouldn't you agree? 
Absolutely. And I, and I wouldn't put it all necessarily on the data mover vendors when it comes to this. You know, the software defined networking, I think, is is one place that we're looking at. But, uh, you know, th that situation is really complex, not only because it has, you know, mixed uh, the mainframe with the Intel workloads, has physical workloads as well as virtual workloads. Um, but the complexity comes also in uh, latency um, and you know the the recovery capability to put workloads where they can talk to what they need to talk to uh, and you know the the ever feared hard-coded IP address can rear its head and you know in recovery you're not able to talk to something you need to talk to so uh, yes you know let's start at those data movers let's let's move as far uh, uh, down that stack of flexibility and recovery as we can uh, but also you know keeping your eye on uh, and, and this is kind of targeted at the, uh, the folks that are architecting the uh, IT solution is keep an eye on how flexible or complex your networking is getting and what that looks like to recover at another location yeah. um, for those reasons. Uh, the more flexible, the more software defined <laughs> your <laughs> environment is, the easier it's going to be. So take as much of that as you can and then let's focus on those uh, complicated pieces. Yeah. I love your third prediction, Ben, and that's the one I want to spend our next couple of minutes talking about. And one of the reasons it jumped out to me was that on the surface, it doesn't have much to do with disaster recovery, which I know is where your brain space has been for 10 or 12 years. You were along for the ride when disaster recovery as a service was created. Uh, so here's your here's your third prediction, just to remind you and to let our audience know. DevOps with fully integrated CI/CD pipelines will continue to grow in adoption for greenfield applications. So tie this together for me, Ben. It does seem to come out of left field. <laughs> <laughs> and and I just out of interest, follow along with the CICD and container uh, uh, containerization and, and workload management along that, because I think it's exciting. I think there's a technology there that solves so many problems. And that's where this comes from, right? The problem that we're talking about solving is that flexibility. We just talked about complexity and uh, you know networking, et cetera where a containerized DevOps style application inherently is flexible in terms of its deployment. It is uh, wrapped in a container that can be deployed fairly easily to different places. There are tools that allow you to define your application declaratively and have it run that way. And those tools manage uh, to that uh, state. And, and to translate that a little bit, you can say there need to be at no less than 12 application servers and uh, three database uh, servers running as part of this application or these microservices, um, you know, running in this environment. Well, the beauty of that inherent flexibility is your ability to also say, well, 
there should be this many running and they can grow to this size, et cetera. Very declaratively have your application running in a single data center. You can do that across multiple data centers uh, and say, I want this to be running in different uh, AWS regions mm-hmm. or I want it running in AWS and Azure and Google Cloud regions so that the idea of a region failure is no longer a concern. Uh, You have now, uh, recovery is not the word, it's about full-on resiliency. Uh, And so the idea that these tools continue to gain traction for people who are developing new applications, if I'm going to step out the door and say, hey, I've got the next lightning in a bottle, we need to develop this, um, I'm going to lean that direction because Mm -hmm. of the effort and dollars that go around, that I see, go around disaster recovery. Uh, It's, in my opinion, much better to build that resiliency into the system into the framework from the start than to have to add it on after the fact. And, mm-hmm. and, and frankly, that's really what disaster recovery approaches are with these data movers that we talked about, is that we're compensating for adding that level of disaster recovery after the application has been deployed, implemented, and in place. Yeah. Even if you have considered fault tolerances, there still is an element for the legacy N-tier applications that are a recovery, meaning you have idle workloads sitting around or resources Mm -hmm. sitting around waiting for a recovery. And so that's the uh, origin of that prediction uh, from that uh, mind space of disaster recovery. I knew there had to be a tie into resiliency and disaster recovery somewhere. I just knew it. You weren't Um, wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, same question, Ben. Who needs to hear this message? As you're thinking about this prediction for 2022 and beyond, who needs to sit up and pay attention? So I think this comes to uh, two audiences again. One of those audiences is IT leadership in terms of uh, organizations that are doing their development, you know, mm-hmm. that, that are developing applications. I know that's not every organization, right? So I'm talking to uh, IT leadership for organizations that develop or customize their own applications to look this direction, to consider this direction as they develop those applications. Uh, You know, even if that's an in-house application to facilitate uh, a certain function, you know, like the customer that we just talked about, you know, those applications developed in a containerized, flexible model uh, make the challenge of that flexibility a lot easier. The other audience member that I'd want to uh, talk to really is uh, the consumer, you know, that IT leader who is the consumer. When you're choosing your applications, when you're refreshing your applications. uh, So I think this is happening natively. There are a lot more Mm -hmm. applications that are coming out as SaaS. Uh, They're coming out software as a service where you can consume them per seat, per user, whatever that metric is. And they have their own SLAs. They have their own resiliency built in, et cetera. Those are great choices uh, when you're dealing with disaster recovery in terms of your uh, workforce, because that's a part of the plan that isn't necessarily, you know, part of your uh, direct purview. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, you need to consider what they are doing and, and, and hold them accountable for their testing uh, and, and show you that they live up to their promises, but it's not something that you're designing for. And mm-hmm. so that, again, that simplifies. So I've talked to a number of customers uh, and uh, one mantra I've heard over and over again over the last several years is, yeah, we used to run Exchange on site and we used mm-hmm. to have to DR that, but that's now up in the cloud. I hear that almost everywhere. And that's a relief when people say it, right? Yeah. So yeah. as you're looking you know, at choosing your applications, at refreshing your applications, looking for those options that leverage this capability, looking for, you know, even if it is something that you have to deploy on site. Do they have a model that allows you to deploy yeah. it in that framework, uh, in a containerized framework? I know several applications out there do offer their applications to launch and run uh, in a container. And now, yeah. There's also container washing, uh, like whitewashing, <laughs> that, yes. you know, yep. we're going to yep. wrap this mog- megalithic application in uh, in a container that doesn't solve every problem, but it right. can, uh, uh, at least it, it gets uh, them thinking in the right direction. Yeah. I love that you brought in to this conversation the, the SaaS-based applications, because I know there are a lot of our listeners... Um, they're not writing a lot of software. They're leveraging that SaaS based. And one of the things I know that you've been preaching for a long time, Ben, is you still have to think about resiliency and recovery, even when you're thinking about your SaaS based application. So thanks for bringing those those folks into the conversation as well with this prediction. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's easy to think, hey, someone else is taking care of that, but you ultimately are responsible for handing over that to to them to take care of. So That's just because right. you're in the cloud doesn't mean you, <laughs> you, you don't have to worry about making sure your application is up and running. And I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir in a lot of cases, <laughs> but uh, uh, it is uh, it is definitely something to, to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Well, Ben, as usual, when you and I sit down to talk, the time has flown by. Uh, and we are we are at time. So I would love to thank you for carving out a little bit of your day and talking to me about your predictions. I know our listeners will gain a lot of insight from the time listening to those three predictions. So thank you very much. Absolutely, Jeff. Thanks a lot. I uh, always enjoy doing it. So anytime. To our listeners, if you want to learn more or if you have additional questions, visit intervision.com. The show notes will provide links and contact information. For Ben Miller, this is Jeff Tun. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find Intervision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.